Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 394. I want to begin this episode, first of all, with acknowledging thanking God. I went through a serious uh, medical procedure, and thank God I'm on recovery. I want to thank you all for the blessings and prayers and good wishes I received. It feels good to be missed, and it feels even better to be back, hopefully stronger than ever. Because, to be very honest, every program I did not do in the last few weeks, I feel like a fish out of water. It's become so much part of my life, literally like oxygen and like a fish in water. And I feel refreshed just being able to sit here and resume, as I said, with even more strength, the weekly program, My Life Chassidus Supply, that I've been doing now for over nine years. And uh, literally uninterrupted. Hashem has his mysterious ways, but here I am. And of all weeks is the week of Purim. End of this week will be Purim. Purim is not just a day of salvation and liberation and redemption, but it's also a day of anapachu. Where the entire month and the entire era, the entire period was transformed from something that could have been tra- tragic, a terrible tragedy, a genocide of the entire Jewish people, men, women, and children, and it turned into being a month that was completely transformed. And transformation is far more than just elimination of a problem. It transforms it, it channels it, it directs it and guides it to something far greater. Chassidus explains that at length, the idea of transforming darkness to light. So in these weeks is my own personal challenges. At the same time, thank God, recovery, getting stronger. But like it is with all individual situations, a microcosm is always reflective of the macrocosm and vice versa. So the message of Purim has particular application to my own life, and I derive many and glean many lessons from it, but it's also lessons for each one of us. I also should add that I actually went to my, my surgical operation was on uh, Monday, Chavzayin Oder Rishon, the 27th of Oder, which we all know is that fateful day when 30 years ago the Rebbe suffered uh, a debilitating stroke but that too we see as a day that ultimately will be transformed into a greater revelation and greater good, better than anything we could ever imagine. It was also pointed out to me that, that those are the days that we were also learning in Chitas, Perek Lamed Beis, Perek Lev in Tanya. Lev is the chapter of Lev Heart. Love, Avet, the chapter of Avet Yisrael. So all this comes together. The first thing when I remember when I was um, recovering, I asked to look at the Rishima, the notes that the, Rebbe, for the Rebbe's father, Rabbi Yitzchok, wrote when he um, was in, he was of course imprisoned, and he writes in detail how every one of his imprisonments, his five different times that he was exiled and imprisoned, he learns lessons from each one of those five, all reflecting the sad gvuras, the severities and judgments of his life. And he says, if he says so, I can definitely say so, that these are all a kapora, a type of atonement for sins and transgressions and misgivings and, um, and, and, and shortcomings. Now, of course, Rabbi Yitzhak wrote that in his, in his humility. But what is most fascinating about his Hashimah is how he sees, even in the most negative things in his life, all divine elements, even the most darkest points, Every one of the places he sat in prison, the name of the ta- cities, the amount of time he sat, all that reflecting his name, Levi Yitzchok, Ben Zelda Rachel, all reflecting the gvuris of his life, the severities and difficulties that he experienced in his life. And I mention him not just in context of this uh, similarity I was looking, because I was looking at myself and I'm saying, okay, so what are these lessons? Chovzai and Oder, Perek Lev, and Tanya. And it became very clear to me, all this is meant to be a Yerid Tzedek Aliyah, 
a challenge, a setback, in order to bring even deeper levels of love and ava and even deeper expressions of expressions from the heart, the love of the heart. Deeper levels, and that's of course what Chassidus applied is all about. Chassidus's entire foundation is love, Avis Yisrael, unconditional love for each other. So to me, these are all personal lessons that I'm deriving from this, and clearly for me, it's a lesson in becoming even stronger in these matters, especially around love and heart and feelings and emotions. So I thank you all again, and I thank God, I thank my family, and I thank all those that have been there for me, and will continue to be there, and we will continue to grow together. And the goal, of course, is to bring Mashiach. That's the bottom line of it all. Now, an interesting other element, of course, as I was in this situation in my own personal challenge, I, the news, of course, that has now consuming the world is the invasion of Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So on a macrocosmic level, we're also living in a very traumatic time. And there too, Ukraine played play supreme because where, where were the places, where was the, the Rebbe's father arrested? He was arrested in Yekaterinoslav, which is Tanei Dnepr Petrovsk, or as it's called Tanei Dnepr, 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 And that is right at the heart of Ukraine. So the battles that are going on there are also on a macrocosmic level. And there too, we immediately look to Purim as the lesson of Purim, of a lesson of transformation. So let me begin with a blessing and a prayer to all the civilians and all the innocent people, and frankly, all the military, everybody in Ukraine, that Hashem God should bless them all, especially the Jews, the million, the, literally the hundreds of thousands of Jews that are there, that they should be at peace, they should be completely intact, not in any way be hurt in any fashion, and Purim should be a lesson that all this should be transformed, that even before Purim comes, like I said, the month, you don't have to wait till the 14th or the 15th of other, that the whole month should be transformed, not just from no more fear and panic and running and hiding and, um, and all that comes with that, but actually a transformation to Yehudim, in Ir Shushan, in all the cities, in Ukraine, cities that are saturated with Teir and Chassidus throughout the generations, that they should all experience a Purim Sameach higher and greater than ever before, and all this should happen even before Purim comes. But this, since is such a central theme, and as I said, it's both on a personal level and a macrocosmic level, that's what we'll talk about will be the focus of this program, being that it's Purim this week, and being that these events of the world, as the Rambam says, to ignore them would be exodious, would be insensitive. Everything has reasons. We may not always understand God's mysterious reasons for why things happen, but we have to definitely derive lessons in our personal lives. And as I said, I personally have my own personal challenges as well in the same context. So it all comes together. But my focus is not going to be on myself. It's going to be on these themes as we all can learn lessons from them. So the big, most important question of all is what can Purim teach us about the war in Ukraine today? Now, before I go there, I do want to acknowledge, I said that I thank you for all your, all your letters and your notes. I literally received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters and emails, firstly asking what, what's happening with the program, and um, which is why we made an announcement last week just to explain the situation. I didn't want to make a panic out of it. I didn't want to turn it into a whole, a whole uh, charade or parade. So I kept it low-key, but I do want to acknowledge all the different letters, and I want to read a few of them before I get into the topic itself. This is just a selection of literally of the hundreds, but I just felt... It's since you wrote to me, I want to read them here on this program. Was there an episode 26th of other didn't see on, on Seola Live and didn't receive in my emails? I usually do. Perhaps I unsubscribe. Please send me the link each week as I always did. Hello, it's the second week I did not get notification about the broadcast plus no mention on the sites about them. Please explain. Thank you. I've been eagerly waiting for your episodes. What happened? Please continue. Thank God you're fine. I miss seeing the last two episodes of My Life Chassidus Applied, sending you blessings of health and happiness and wishing you only simcha. 
As a big fan of your classes, which I learned so much from, I would like to convey the following bracha to you. May Hashem bless you with a refor shlema. May every word and letter of Teda that you taught testify before God's throne that you should have the strength to increase and make even more Teda classes than before. May you always have an abundant amount of parnosa, and may you and your family always have good news to share with the community. And finally, one more selection. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for taking the time and giving my questions your wisdom and thought. I appreciate the answers and the two weeks of follow-up on the question of my father-in-law and whether to name a grandchild for him. You were sensitive to our living niece who was struggling because she has different challenges in this regard. But thank you for being candid and genuine about the circumstances. It was helpful to hear that there is a heavenly court where justice will prevail and there are many other Jewish men in our Torah whom we can have beautiful... Who, who, who can have a beautiful, we, whom we can name after with a beautiful, powerful Jewish name. May Hashem continue to bless you with health and koyach to do your vital work. Okay, so now let's go to the question. What can Purim teach us about the, U- the war in Ukraine today? So Purim has literally infinite amount of lessons. The major one that I mentioned, of course, needs to be emphasized again and again, and that is that every situation that even may seem dire and hopeless, never give up. There's a great God. Sometimes he's concealed. As he is in the Megillah, you don't see his name. But you see how things turn around and transform completely. And a day that could have been the worst possible day in the Jewish calendar becomes the best possible day. And that's why the Simcha is Adelayada, a Simcha that's completely boundless and unbridled, without any limitations. Because it didn't just come from an event that happened, a beautiful event. It came from total transformation. Whenever something that is very, very dark turns into light, it creates far greater energy. Like we see when a person's very thirsty, they, when, they, then they're, 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 when a person is, hasn't drunk a long time, their thirst becomes much more intense and they appreciate the water so much more. One of many different examples given in the power of transformation. So the first things we have to hold on and we have to assure ourselves and our families and the Jews and the people in Ukraine that God is with you and will protect you. At the same time, this doesn't mean we sit quietly. Purim was not sitting quietly. Mordechai was not passive, nor was Esther. They prayed. They did their established and efforts. Esther went and did what she had to do with Achashverosh. So we have to learn from that as well, that we have to make every possible effort, in natural means and beyond natural means. And we see clearly, of course, the biggest power of all, as the Rebbe emphasizes, are the prayers. The Nikolu HaYehudim, and they're gathering the children, and the children saying the different psukim, the different verses that counteract every type of terrible decree. So that's the second thing, that in addition to the betochen and trust, we have to also do whatever we can possibly do. <clears throat> the third thing we need to know, good always prevails over in bad and evil. Without getting into the details, and we'll talk about them soon more, the bottom line is that there are good people, innocent people that have been attacked for no reason. They didn't do anything wrong. They did not provoke. They did not in any way instigate. And yet they've been attacked. So as human beings, what we learn is that we must stand up for the right of every human being to be who they are without having to feel fear that someone else, some tyrant, will will override them or overwhelm them or kill them for that matter. So the world is, yes, is stunned. The world is reeling about it. Sanctions, they're doing, making some efforts, but it still behooves us. I mean, are we ready to defend values of innocent being people attacked? What are we waiting for? What line has to be, has to be, has to be crossed for us to finally say this is enough is enough? Now, I'm not here to discuss politics or discuss military strategy. But the outrage has to be one that is so profound that goes even farther than everything we've said so far. Simple as that. And as we'll discuss, in Judaism, we always see every war as being there's a physical war and doing everything possible to protect the innocent and to in some way create and restore calm and peace. But at the same time, there's also a spiritual war. There's a spiritual war of morale, of values, of spirit, of what do we stand for? In very many ways, the Western world has been caught on its backside because they're weak. Not weak necessarily militarily, but we've been so spoiled by our comfort zones and by our high standards of living 
that, are we ready to fight for what we stand for? The last time we fought was World War II, and it was also reluctant. It was also didn't come easily. We were forced into it. When I say we, I mean the United States and the Western world. So this is also an opportunity, a wake-up call. What do we stand for? And we have to come out with a war, a spiritual revolution that's even greater than the war that is being raging, which is raging now and being waged in the Ukraine. And this brings me to a critical point that the Rebbe himself, in a different situation, spoke about a while back. And that leads me to the next question, and that is, what did the Rebbe say in 1983 about nations in conflict? But before that, are there similarities between the Jews in Persia and Ukraine? What are we to do when we witness such battles? So there's always similarities whenever you see a people in oppression, a people under attack. Similarities in many different ways. But there's also what we do about it. So there's a fascinating medrash. The medrash is, is in Bereish Yisraba, in Lech Lecha, Parshas Membez Dalet. And there it says, when Malchis Mizgaris Elu Be'elu, when you see nations in conflict with one another, so Tzipo, Laraglu Shal Mashiach, you can anticipate Mashiach's coming. As the commentaries explain, because we see by Avram Avinu that when there were conflicts between different nations, different empires, different kings, it ultimately led to the redemption of Avram Avinu. And the same today. The Rebbe cites this in a number of places. In some way, if you may recall, during the time of the Gulf War, 1991, 1990, 1990, 1991, the Rebbe also quoted in the context of the Yalkut Shmeni, that when you see one nation attacking another, and people will run about and say, what's going on? God says, don't be afraid. So we see from this a pattern in Medrash and Chazal, that when there are conflicts in the world, it's not just a, a, a political regional event. It's actually a spiritual event. It is the beginnings of a geula. So you'll say, why do we need, do we need to rely on these negative events to have the geula? Why can't it just come peacefully? Because we're dealing with a clash between two paradigms, between two realities, the reality of Golas and the reality of geula. And Golas doesn't always mean just a battle and a war in a physical sense. Any time that a person is, behaves in a selfish way, any time that a person does not recognize their deeper purpose in life, there's already a dissonance on some subtle level. On a global or on a larger, on a larger macrocosmic level, it's a dissonance between nations. But the mere fact that nations can go to war against each other, how is that possible? If we're all part of one organism, if we're all part of one higher reality, how is it possible that the right arm can attack the left arm? The example the Yerushalmi gives. But you can use it broader upon the entire world. It's a healthy body, one part of the body does not attack another part of the body. That means there's a state of spiritual displacement or spiritual dissonance that allows that to happen. That itself is the ultimate clash against the reality of an integral unity that there's a harmony within the diversity of nations of this world. That people can live coexist even though we may have different opinions and we have different boundaries. And we may have different cultures and races, but there's an element that connects us all. As soon as you see one nation trying to rise above another, you're dealing with a clash against God, not just against other people, because God created this diversity. So really, the fact that the, fact that the Medrash says that when the nations will come, there's a conflict between Malchis, between empires, between nations, that indicates Mashiach's coming because that conflict itself reveals, they reveal and crystallize that there is a dissonance, a tremendous dissonance. And so the fact that we know it now, if we didn't see that clash, you could say, you know what, things seem peaceful. But it's not a world of Geula. Now we know it, so now we have to look at it and say, one second, what do we stand for? Are we ready to fight for Geula? What does Geula mean in simple English? For a world of harmony within diversity. In the words of the Rambam, a world with his no famine and no war, no, no avarice and no jealousy, nothing unhealthy, but it'll be a world, what, what, that you'll have, what he says there is he says that, um, that the Russian there, he says, that 
the entire business of the world will be to know God. This doesn't just mean that everyone will be a theologian. It means that we will be permeated, saturated with a higher purpose. As he says in the previous chapter, that all the nations will be transformed and speak one language. There'll be nations, many nations, and diversity, but they will all speak a language that is a common language. Think of it as, as diverse in, in instruments or, or uh, musicians in a grand symphony. And that's the war that we have to be recognized that we're really fighting for. Yes, it plays itself out in real war and you have to do whatever it takes to protect the innocent and to fight the aggressor and so on and do whatever it takes and achieve peace. But the real war, the real is that it's we're talking about a higher truth that we want to emerge from this or else it wouldn't have been worth it. This isn't just going back to square one. Yes, we'd love to go back to square one. Everyone would love that. Innocent people are being hurt and are right now under threat and have been killed and so on. But we want much more than that. We want napach. We want a kredesh We want a transformation to the gula mitis vashlem. But there's something we can do about that. Besides the focus of understanding the context of these battles and wars, we also can do something about it. Firstly, by understanding what it's all about, sharing it with others, and actually creating a grassroots revolution literally a grassroots revolution that, that is going to transform this world into a place of goodness and kindness. And we will not tolerate zero tolerance of anything that tries to offend or tries to in any way compromise that. But to take it a step further, so, to, so as we spoke about um, what, what, we, how, what are we to do when we witness such battles? Is it a sign that Mashiach is coming when nations are at war? Absolutely, yes. I'm reading some of the questions here. So now, what did the Rebbe say in 1983 about nations in conflict? So indeed, and I remember this very vividly, I was merited to write this Fabrengen. So it was Yutas Kislev, and then the Shabbos afterwards, Shabbos Pasha Vayeshev Chov Kislev. Yutas Kislev was Friday that year. So the Rebbe spoke about So the Rebbe, this is printed, the Rebbe edited it extensively. It's printed in Lekutte Sichas, in volume, volume 25, page 373, in the year Tovshin Dalad Mem, which was the end of 1983, if I recall correctly. Yes, it was the end of 1983. It was already Tovshin Mem Dalad. And the Rebbe says, in connection with what's going on in the world now, the Malchus Mizgodis Elu Be'elu, he quotes this Medrash, where kingdoms or empires are, come, are clashing with one another, especially in the last years, months, and weeks. And it's in a shocking manner. And in a certain measure, it's also including, encompassing Jews. So the Rebbe says that even though this is a simon of Geula, of Mashiach coming, but seemingly we are ready with Yetzirah. How many simonim do we have? We've already gone through enough battles and conflicts and wars. So when you see something, we have to do something about it. And in addition, we see also a, 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 a shocking spread of Eifah Mavil, in a shocking way, of the opposite of Avis Yisrael, the Sholom V'Achdus Ben Yisrael, divisiveness, the opposite of love of, of love of one another. So due to this new situation, since prayer, tefillah, is what we do. What is prayer? It's all about responding to needs. So when there's a new need or new situation, so the Rebbe comes out with a, a, a suggestion that in addition to the I suffer, that in addition to the regular prayers that we say, and even those that say these prayers, the ones he's going to mention, there should be special emphasis, or in addition to those that don't say them yet, to two prayers. One we say in the beginning of the morning prayer, and one at the end of the morning prayer. And that is a sofa betfilah, one that's connected with Avi Sisral, and that is the Hadeni Mekabel, that in the morning we should begin saying every day, I accept upon myself the mitzvah of Ahavtalecha And at the end of the prayer, something that's connected to Manucha, Ach Sadikim, Yeshu Yisharim, Ach Sadikim, Yedu Lushmachi, Yeshu Yisharim, Esponacha which is referring to the righteous who acknowledge God's name and exalt God's name, that they shall sit 
And Yeshua comes from the word Yeshashvus, sit with in peace and in harmony and in, uh, in serenity. Esparnecha. Connected to Manucha Yeshashvus V'shalom. That's what the Rebbe declared then in the end of 1983 in the year, in the year Taskislev and Tov Shem Memdalet. It goes on to bring from different sources where these prayers are originate from. And by adding in these prayers, the Rebbe says, this is what we can do to actually change the situation in the world. Because he's not just talking a personal situation in a community or in a few communities. He's talking about the whole world. And he says at the end, Vihiratsan, that by taking, the, by taking on this suggestion of Avisa Sola Menucha, the Chlota itself should already bring all the results of, of eliminating all the, the, the negative decrees, eliminating all the conflicts and battles and struggles, and ultimately bring Padre Shalom the Geula Amitiz Vashlein. So though this is definitely not the same situation as it is today, but everything the Rebbe said then applies today, today as well. And I say definitely not, the Rebbe's words, are forever. So you can apply them clearly to our times as well. But let's take it a step further. It's saying the prayer, but also the kavana, the intention, and acting on it. It means that what's asked of us right now is an increase in lev, in heart, in Avis Yisrael, in ways that are unprecedented. And the same thing, an increase in living in harmony and serenity among each other. That's what has to be the call of the hour. And that has to be a revolution. That should affect all of us. So even though the tefillahs, you can say, are really prayers for Jewish people, but the truth is this, this uh, message of them, the spirit of them is for all human beings. The idea of complete unconditional love and harmony within diversity and living in peace with one another. So although the Rebbe didn't say it explicitly, but it's very clear, it's not just about saying the tefillah, which itself pierces heaven and accomplishes great things, it's about implementing it as well. So we have lessons that even though situations back then you would say, the Rebbe anticipated what would be later, but it's all Teda, and Teda anticipates. And yes, we can learn from that, for things that are connected to our lives today. The next question in this context. How are we to see these events in context of the Rebbe's words over 30 years ago about the bloodless fall of the Soviet Union? So this just takes the theme further into what we're discussing here. So in 1990, when the Soviet Union fell bloodlessly, no war and no provocation, a mighty empire that had oppressed and suppressed personal rights and freedoms of millions and millions of people, including, of course, Jewish people. It was called the Iron Curtain. It was called being behind the Iron Curtain, that they literally could not leave that country. And for over 70 years, were oppressed. And bloodlessly, the Soviet Union collapsed. And the Rebbe saw that as a tremendous event in context of history. Many people wondered, one second, there are many different empires that collapsed. But remember, this was a superpower. This was the last remaining superpower that still held people in prison, basically. So the fall of the Soviet Union by the Rebbe was another sign of Mashiach's coming. So now let's fast forward. It's a little more than 30 years later, 32 years later. And we see that that same Soviet Union has now, or Russia, has now invaded another country, a sovereign country called Ukraine. So you could think it's a somewhat of a setback. Something's wrong here. But no, think of it the exact opposite way. What happened then still needs to be finished. The job has to be finished. Mashiach didn't come then. It was a sign that we're getting closer. It was a sign of progressive growth and the trajectory from the beginning of history has been going in that direction. But now comes the time that clearly there's still, there's still fragments, or like Chassidus calls it, the tzikek data, that yuzbaru v'yislabna advarim, when you see things are unrest, it means it hasn't yet fully transformed, it's not fully saturated and permeated that part of the world. And though, yes, the beginning happened 32 years ago, the job has to be finished. 
And what is the job being finished? That yes, that the world, the, the, the country called Russia should accept its important role in this world. No one's taking away from that important role. But that important role is all for freedom. It's all for recognizing the harmony within diversity. So without going into analyzing the intentions of the president of Russia or the other people there, the bottom line is this is all part of a process. Now, we all hope that it would go in a smooth way. But when it doesn't go in a smooth way, we don't say, oh, you know what? We're back to square one. It's failed. That's never the approach of the Jewish people. We're always getting closer to Mashiach. There's no such thing as getting farther. So when you see a setback like this, it tells you it's a wake-up call. Now we have to now stand up for our rights. Maybe we're taking, we, took, we took for granted the fall of, this, of the Soviet Union in that way. And we didn't fully appreciate what needs to be done. That we have to have a call, a, lo, a call like never before to all of humanity that the time has come, the time has come for us all to embrace that higher calling while also being independent and individual. This isn't about one country controlling another. Now, does that mean the Gula is here yet? No, you see, as soon as the war is fought, no one even suggested in 1990 that the redemption was here. That's not what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said it's a, it's a step, a vital step, one of the last steps in, in crossing the threshold toward Gula. So that's where we're at. And that's how we have to see these events as a continuation of that. And ultimately, with the goal being that this should all lead toward the Yehov Chuyamun, to the Yehudim to the transformation, as we discussed earlier. So to, in that context, a few other questions that came in. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, when I was in Yeshiva, I was taught that everything that happened during Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim will happen again during the final Geula, but on an even grander and more miraculous scale. Correct. Everything that happened, as it was in the days when they left Egypt, I will show you wonders in the future. So, Geula Purim leads to Mismar Geula Geula, to the Geula of Mitzrayim. So it's all interconnected. During Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, during the exodus from Egypt, a civil war broke out between the, Mitz- the Mitzrayim, during Makas Pcherist. A civil war broke out between the Egyptians during the 10th plague of the firstborn. One group wanted to let us go free from slavery and the other fought to keep us enslaved. Looking at today's events, it's very clear that the war between Russia and Ukraine is a civil war between two groups of Slavic peoples that have both wronged us in the past. I don't know if I would agree with that, as many Ukrainians would not agree that they're part of Russia, in case Slavic peoples perhaps, and it's true that they have plenty of things in common, but let's assume that you're saying is correct. Let's continue. But now Ukraine is fighting for freedom and Russia is fighting for the side of evil to keep their oligarchy in power. This is a clear sign to me that Mashiach and the final Gula are around the, are around the corner, ready to come. What are your thoughts? So let's read another question. There's a link going around social media that a prophecy from the Vilna Gaon said that when Russia invades Crimea, it's a sign Mashiach is getting ready to come. And when Russia reaches Constantinople, we should put on our Shabbos clothes and come out to greet Mashiach. Do we have any prophecies from our Chabad Rabbeim about this? Well, the, 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 the prophecies that the Rabbeim have quoted, I mentioned before from the Medrash al that's regarding the Persian Gulf War, that's the Middle East, regarding Malchus Mizgaris, Elubeilu, or Zubazu, as we discussed. Um, this I've not heard before, this uh, prophecy you're mentioning. As I've always said many times in this program, you have to always be wary of prophecies and trying to fit things into the events. But that doesn't mean we can't learn lessons because there is a pattern that when there are these conflicts, they are ultimately, a, they are definitely prescient and in the sense of foretelling events to come, which is a new world order is, is, in, is on its way. There's no doubt about that. So in that sense, absolutely. But I don't know if I'm going to start comparing this prophecy to that prophecy, but all of this really all that indicates, as I said, a similar pattern. So it is true, therefore, that you could say the Ukrainian and Russian, the war right now in, the, 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 between Ukraine and Russia does indicate what you had written before, 
I'm always wary in speculating exactly the details because, as I'm going to read in a moment, someone asked the question, is Ukraine being punished for what they did? And is Russia being punished for what they did? So there's always a combination of many factors that are involved. Even though it is true that there are innocent people being hurt, but remember, at the end of the day, our focus has to be not on the battles between these two uh, nations. The focus has to be, what, is, what do we stand for? We stand for what God wants. We're on the side of God. And God is on the side of innocent people. And God is on the side of finding peace and harmony. Yeshvi Yishodim es panecha. To sit and live in peace in a form of Avis Yisrael and Ava in general, love between people, even though they're diverse. That should be our focus. That is our focus. So I'd rather st- stick to that element because that is something I'm clear about because that I know. Whereas the actual details, you know, you know, obviously Ukraine was attacked unprovoked and that's an outrage. And that's clear. Now to start saying the Ukraine, purely the righteous people and uh, Russia are all evil, wicked people, I wouldn't make that argument either. War is war. And the fact of the matter is that there's always deeper reasons for things. Which leads me to the next question. And that is... Exactly the one I just mentioned, alluded to. Let me read that. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I missed your Hasidus Applied episode this past Sunday. I hope you're okay. The Ukrainian national anthem ends, will not spare either our souls or bodies to get freedom, and will prove that we brothers are of Kazakh kin. According to, when he refers to a website, Kozaks, the name Kozak, Ukrainian, which is Kozak, is derived from the Turkish, Turkish Kazakh free man meaning anyone who could not find his appropriate place in society and went into the steps where he acknowledged no authority. So hopefully I've established that Kozak and Kozak are the same. Who are the Kozaks? Think of Bogdan Chmelnitsky, leader of the Kozak and peasant uprising against Polish rule in the Ukraine in 1648, which resulted in the destruction of hundreds of Jewish communities. Later, Hetman of autonomous Ukraine, initiator of its unification with Russia. In Kiev, there's a statue of Bodgan Chmelnitsky. What else do we know about him? In 1648, Chmelnitsky and his Cossack hordes fell upon Eastern Europe's Jews with a barbarity they had not seen since the temple burned. Pregnant women were cruelly killed, babies brutally slaughtered. The number killed is estimated to have been 300,000. The total of Eastern European Jewry at the time was around 1,300,000. So he killed over 25% of Eastern European Jewry. As a result of his genocide, we say the prayer of Arachmim on Shabbos, which ends, he will render judgment upon the nations and they will be filled with corpses. He will crush heads over a vast land. He will drink from the stream on the way and so will hold his head high. Could it be that a country that proudly states its Kazakh origins and displays, and displays a monument to this heinous butcher is getting its just desserts for the atrocities their ancestors and heroes committed. Well, as I said, these are God's ways and we will never understand fully. I will say the following. You can also make the argument that Russia had its own measure of atrocities against the Jewish people. So in many ways, yes, the nations are going to be held accountable. But you have to put things into context. Even if all this is true, the fact is there are hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Ukraine. And up till the war broke out, this invasion broke out, they were living not just in peace, but thriving. The rabbis there, over 180 Chabad houses and communities literally thriving. Under Ukraine, the Ukrainian president is Jewish. So though there's, I'm sure, anti-Semitism there, and there's definitely anti-Semitic history, You have to put things into context. This doesn't, in other words, justify why innocent civilians, even non-Jews, should be killed now. So to say there's no deeper meaning and no deeper judgment going on and deeper accountability and somewhat retribution, 
I'm not going to make that argument because the fact of the matter is things do come around. But when you talk about things, it's important to put things into context. It would be it's like saying if Hitler kills someone who is really our enemy, so now what, are we going to march with Hitler in solidarity? No, Hitler is Hitler. And yes, he may have killed someone who deserved to be killed. But you have to put things into that proper context. That's why it's critical to always maintain that balanced approach and perspective on all these matters. And that leads me to a question the other way around. Where someone had the Rebbe, did the Rebbe ever say, let me see, let me find that question. That Russia comes from the word Ra, or Russia as in a wicked person. So I never heard the Rebbe say, did Russia behave in that way for many years? Both Tsarist Russia and Communist Union, the Soviet Union, and the Communist Soviet Union, they would say the, the horrible ways toward the Jewish people. So if you're going to start measuring, I don't know if you start measuring exactly who was the greater enemy. We have plenty to contend with. Right now, again, our war is not a war against Russia. It's not a war against Ukraine. It's a war against God, against what God wants this world to look like. We are here to bring in a new world order. The Jewish people always kept their eyes on the ball. They never got caught up in the politics of the moment. Yes, there were times when Al Rebbe felt that Russia should win the war, but it was for a higher divine purpose. Not because of loyalty to Russia, it was because that was what he felt would be better for the Jewish people and for what God wants in this world. And the same thing now, we have to keep our eyes on the ball in that sense. In that sense, Ukraine was attacked unprovoked. And that's why I keep focusing on that, that dimension and not to get distracted. Which leads me to the question that I mentioned before and I'll mention again now. So, should we be taking sides in this war? We should be taking sides exactly as I just described it. We are always there to protect the innocent. We're always there to express outrage against anyone that attacks innocent civilians. But above all, we take sides because we want to have that greater world order, a world of morality and virtue and humanitarianism and world peace, as the Rambam describes the world of Mashiach, the world of Mashiach and Gu'ura. Okay. There's so many other questions that since we have some more time, I'm going to go through a few more, and hopefully I'll cover whatever I don't cover. Hope to cover in future programs. Okay. This is a letter from Kharkov, or what is how it's called today, Kharkiv. Many of the cities, their names have been changed, but there are cities that we're very familiar with. It's a letter from Kharkov. Let me find it. I apologize, all my pages are all over the place. Dear Rabbi Jacob, hello from Kharkiv, Ukraine. Kharkiv, Ukraine. My question is, how can we increase in joy during the month of other when a, with a war raging, raging in our city and atrocities occurring around us? Many people, thankfully, safely evacuated, but those of us staying behind to take care of elderly patients in a nursing home are facing terrible hardships. What advice can you give us to be able to increase in Simcha under these circumstances? Thank you, and may Hashem bless us and the world with peace. Well, it's easy for me to speak all the way sitting here in the United States in New York, but the fact of the matter is, this is what the Jewish people have gone through from the beginning of history, times of literally difficult ones, and Purim reigns supreme as being that strength and example that a situation like that, which almost led to a genocide of the entire Jewish people in the entire world, now all the 127 nations under the control of Ahasuerus, the Persian emperor, king, then we learn from that that everything can turn around. So you have to keep hanging on and holding strong. It's not easy. But like the next question asks me, um, ask, this, ask this question. Should we cancel Purim this year in solidarity with the Ukrainian Jews? Let me read the full question before I express my outrageous 
my outrage to the question itself. Should we cancel Purim this year in solidarity with the Ukrainian people? Because how, how can we eat, drink, and make dancing parties and big celebrations while 40 million people are suffering barbaric cruelties launched at them from Russia? Well, the exact opposite is true. For us, simcha, joy, is not an escape. It's reality. It's recognizing that even though your eyes don't see where the hope is going to come from, you still hold on with an inner joy that God put us in this world, and God gives us the strength to deal with any gives us the strength to deal with any challenge. So God forbid, the exact opposite is true. Cancel Purim. On the contrary, that's when we need Purim more than ever in a time like this. To teach us, to empower us, to strengthen us, as we discussed earlier at length. Remember, joy again is not an escape. Joy is an instrument, a tool of accessing deeper strength. It's connected to betochen, to trust. And when you have that attitude, you can then break through any type of challenges. Is it easy? No. Is it always possible to understand how it's going to work? No. So on the contrary, we should celebrate Purim Mao more than ever anywhere in the world. But keep in mind, not ignoring, doing everything possible to help our brethren in Ukraine or wherever they may be. And recognizing that the joy is not an escape. Oh, we're happy even though you're not. Our joy is meant to elicit deeper strengths for all of us. And when we do everything we need to do, both on the spiritual front and the physical front, we actually will ultimately prevail in this battle. Okay. When leaders attack others, is it by their free will or is it ordained from above? Rabbi, I'm sure you've addressed this question before, but, but, but maybe my question is phrased differently. When we ask how can someone like Pharaoh or Haman be punished if everything is decreed by Hashem, by God, we answer the circumstance that was brought, that was brought on by Pharaoh or Haman was decreed to happen. But Pharaoh or Haman didn't have to be the ones to do what they did. I have a tough time with the answer. This answer is the Rambam gives it in the Chushchuvah. This answer seems to be saying that there's an aspect of life that is not in Hashem's control, our free choice. How do we wrap our heads around this idea that on the one hand we believe and know that everything is in God's hands, everything is Hashem, but on the other hand we are being told that Pharaoh or Haman's choice to be the messenger was not in God's hands. Another way someone wrote this question, Rabbi, I was wondering how you would comment on this. Everything is orchestrated by God, right? So everything is God's will, right? Yeah. The fact that a human should have free choice is God's will as well. So when a human chooses, it ends up being that that is part of God's will. So now we can paradoxically, not understandingly say that there are external and deeper wills to God. The fact that something happened is a will, right? So for a Jew to marry a non-Jew, was that God's will? You have to say on some level, since it happened, it was. But does he truly want it? No. He wants the Jewish nation to, to keep growing and not diminish. But everything still is God's will, the way everything turns out. Putin invading Russia, Hitler and the Jews, Spanish Inquisition, the spaceship of the spaceship landing on the moon. Was it the right way to, is, was, was, is this the right way to view all of this? A, another person writes, a basic tenet of Yiddishkeit is that Hashem is the shalit hayochit, the only one in control, the only true power in, contr in control. And the heart of the king is in the hands of God. But aren't leaders responsible for their actions? Don't they have freedom of choice? Shouldn't they be punished for their evil deeds? Do you still, do you still have a program of chassidus applied? Okay. So the answer to all of this is, of course, the big question, which I don't want to go into extensive detail, is that, yes, God in his infinite power gave us free will. The fact that God ordains things, 
that does not take away your free will to make a choice. Anyone who does, uh, does something in the area of right or wrong, of good or evil, is going to be accountable for their behavior. There's a whole discussion that God set us up, the idea of Neir Alilal Bnei Adam, is the end result what God ultimately wanted, but they can never take away what the Rambam says is a Yaseid Chazak, a critical foundation in all of Judaism, is that you and I have free will. You take that away, the whole, the whole purpose of existence ceases to be. So though there may be a bigger plan, and God does, can incite and instigate, as we see he did with Pharaoh, but the bottom line is there's a part of it that the person chooses. Does the person choose at all? Maybe not. But there's a part that there is free will. So I don't want to go now into a long explanation. The point is that God does suspend in his infinite capacity when it comes down to it that he's not going to control what you're going to do. Did Putin have an ability to not attack Russia, not attack Ukraine? The answer has to be yes. He did not have to attack civilians. Did he have a control whether he shouldn't have some confrontation? Maybe not. Maybe confrontation had to happen. But there are many ways that confrontation could have happened. Just like the Rambam says about the Egyptians, that the Jews had to live in a land that was not theirs, that was preordained. But what kind of land? And will it be the oppression that they received? And who's going to oppress? So there are many things that are up to free will. That's the short answer to it all. And that leads me to the next question. What does the Torah tell us to do when bullies threaten us? Should we be pacifying or fighting the aggressor? Should we pacify them? Should we run away? Or should we fight back even if the odds are against us? And at best, it will be a, 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 a pyrrhic Pyrrhic victory. Even if Ukraine wins, half the country will have been reduced to rubble. So what use would it be, even be, to win? May Hashem bring peace and justice into the world and may the enemy suffer the most painful experiences that consume them from the inside out. Should we boycott all Russian products and industries until they stop killing innocent Ukrainian families? Okay. Well, this goes back, as I said before, it's not about taking a side here or there. It's more about the moral, the moral voice that we have to be and stand up for what is correct. If indeed here innocents were attacked, so by all means, sanctions and boycotts are definitely in order, any form of pressure. Will it work is another question, but there's no question that it has to be done. To just pacify, what did Churchill say about pacifism? What did he say about um, pacifism? He said, pacifism is like feeding the crocodiles in the hope that you will be eaten last. You have to be very careful when you pacify. Should you compromise? There are times that it's important to compromise. To end bloodshed, to end war. But you have to be very careful because you can pacify and then end up giving up something and then going right back to where you were. Look what happened with Hitler when he was trying to be pacified. So this has to be done very wisely and very cautiously. You can't just say, you know what, let's just compromise and let's just end this all. Because then you wait a few more years and it can be oh, next time more, even worse. That's why you need to have a very balanced and intelligent approach to it all. As I said, going to all the political strategies and details is not the place here. Just sharing what I think is the Torah, Siddhis approach to it all. Another question. In the past, when there were military tensions, the Rebbe said to people not to flee Israel, but to stay there because it's the safest place on earth. What advice would the Rebbe give to Jews in Ukraine? Would he tell them to stay and keep their shuls open or to evacuate and save their lives? Well, it's a very good question. I cannot speculate what the Rebbe would say. We do know the Rebbe's general approach, but there's also an element of pikuach nefesh mamish. In a time of war, in a time of attack, you have men, women, and children. So those that, that, that need to run to save their lives, Pekuach Nefesh, remember, always is more powerful than anything else. So you could say, what about in Israel and other places in South Africa and other places the Rebbe said to stay? So fine, this can be an argument. And I think at the end of the day, what we have to do today is ask Rabbanim and ask people, Mashpim, people who know Teirah, know Shulchan Aruch, and ask them what to do under certain circumstances. I don't know if one case can be compared to another, but it's an interesting question. I am definitely not going to come out and say, hey, stay, because the Rebbe said stay in previous situations. 
I think, I think in Ukraine happens to be many are leaving and many have left simply because of the fear and the concern of Pekoach Nefesh. Many have stayed as well, rabbis as well, because they feel they need to stay with their communities and do whatever is possible to keep preserve them and keep them protected and keep them giving them supplies of food and medicine and so on. <clears throat> okay. So we'll do another few. And I see, let's see what else is there to do. Okay. I just read your article about not remaining silent and Zelensky being a hero. That's President Zelensky of Ukraine. I cannot stomach all the news, but I hear plenty. And the vibes I'm getting is that although Putin is a brutal dictator, we do need to see the anti-Semitic neo-Nazis and Arab terrorists wiped out of Ukraine. The Jews must unfortunately and heartbreakingly run away not to get hurt, but don't we hope a Amalek and evil gets wiped out for what they did to their Abayim and Jewry? Hashem picked Putin to do this for us. Zelensky thanks Yidin, and anyone asking Yidin leaders to get involved are far from heroes. Why mix the Jews in this conflict? Don't we have enough enemies? And what Ukraine did to us definitely should not have our support. And Biden pairing up with Iran, yet not, not no one is saying boo, this is where our focus should be because this is a threat straight at us, Yidin. Hashem Yirachem Mashiach now. And may Hashem keep all the innocents safe. I don't necessarily agree with this rambling uh, tone of yours and your opinion here. Um, I, as I said, I don't think taking sides here is a wise thing to do. Um, the point I do make is this, that to, to use the, the denazification of Ukraine as an excuse to kill innocent people, including Jews, it's quite ironic, wouldn't you say so? Zelensky is definitely not a Nazi, he's a Jew, as well as many other Jews that are being hurt. So it's a good excuse to say that Ukraine does not have anti-Semites. Russia also has anti-Semites. So I don't know if you can start using that finger, that, uh, that uh, card, because it still goes all around. So, um, so I think it's be very careful when we address this topic in this context, which also leads me to a bunch of people writing back and forth that some say we should support Putin because then the war will end and peace will, be, will be prevail. Others say exact opposite. That's why I keep going back and forth and saying our focus has to be take the high moral ground what the Torah says. That's the most important thing of all. Not to get into the nitty-gritty of the exact details of the individuals here. Should we go to Ukraine and volunteer to help in any way we can? I live in New York. I am not Ukrainian, but as a Jew, I cannot stand idly by and watch a genocidal atrocity committed by Russia against innocent civilians in Ukraine. It breaks my heart to see this. I don't have any military experience, but if Ukraine asked for volunteers to come and join a civil defense militia, I would go and do whatever they asked me to do, whether it was to pick up a rifle and shoot as Russian tanks, at Russian tanks or sit in an army base and cook food for the Ukrainian soldiers. I asked my wife if she gives me permission, as she said, if I feel strongly about it, then she gives her permission. But she would be very upset if I got hurt. Okay, I can't give you advice on this matter. This you should ask a rov, you should ask your mashpiyim. Oh, the person continues, one second. My question is, what advice would the Rebbe give us, given a dire situation like this? Would he prefer we stay home and pray... For to Hashem for peace, or would the Rebbe say Torah phrases such as Ein Sem or We have heard stories of famous Chassidim who were arrested and sent to gulags in Siberia for sabotaging trains and weapons that were going to be used against our community, and the Rebbe and these Chassidim wrote friendly mail to each other for years. So it seems perhaps the Rebbe would support physical action that would help save lives during a war. I believe that all lives are precious. It doesn't matter which religious which religion we are, or what the country we come from. Hashem created every person for a good reason. I would gladly risk my life to help innocent Ukrainian civilians that Hashem created. May Hashem protect everyone and may the evil be stopped immediately. So my advice is, as I said, speak to Arov, speak to Mashpia. Above all, speak to the rabbis in Ukraine. And they can tell you what's the best way for you to help them. Maybe it's through financial help. Maybe it is through prayers. Maybe it's through staying here and putting on political pressure. So I don't know if going to Ukraine is the actual advice. It may not be any. It may not be of any help to anyone there. Okay. With that, let me conclude. This is after all. Chassidus, my life. Chassidus applied. So I want to conclude with the Chassidus question. 
That is, that is all about this topic as well, but also connected to Purim. Rabbi, I believe I learned somewhere that the Rebbe says one must be joyful without any reason. Joy for the sake of joy. Not sure if I'm quoting that correctly, but if true, how does that look? How does one express joy without connecting it to something that you are joyful about or because of? And a second question that dovetails of this one. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I miss your weekly MyLife Chassidus Applied broadcasts. I hope you're well and there's some positive reason that you've paused the broadcast. My question is about drinking Apurim to the point we don't know the difference between the cursed Haman and blessed be Mordechai. Cursed be Haman. Order Haman and Baruch Mordechai. Blessed be Mordechai. Despite not being drunk, I was thinking about that and wondering what's the difference. What the difference is. Aren't the two really just two sides of the same coin? Isn't it sort of similar to Surmarav Asei Tev? Stay away from evil and do good. Haman and all he represents is evil and thus cursed. And Mordechai and all he represents is good and thus blessed. What really is the distinction? So these two questions really answer one another. There are times that joy comes, a simchal pitam vedas it's called. A joy that comes for a reason. You're marrying off a child. You got an, out of a situation that was difficult and you feel blessed. So there's a simcha. Ein simcha katoris asfekis. You had doubts and there's a simcha like resolving doubts. But then there's a simcha that comes that's not just a rational one. That comes from a complete transformation. Like a miraculous paradigm shift. Like Purim. Where there we call that a super rational joy. It's one an unbridled joy that is not based on any logical reason. It's just the idea, the joy of life itself, the joy of the miracle, the joy of something special, recognizing a transcendent joy that's completely beyond your own boundaries. Purim is such a joy because who could believe that such a dark situation, such a dire situation can turn into such a celebration? That's why it's a simcha adeloyada, super rational. Beyond the ten faculties that make sense and that are emotionally that are emotionally log- that are cognitively logical or emotionally sensible, and that's why it's a it's a ben Not God forbid that we don't distinguish between curse and blessing, that we come to a place where the boundaries between dark and light have completely been defied, have completely been transcended. And when you come to a place like that, you experience total transformation. Complete transformation. That's, at times, the joy we need when we're in situations like we are now dealing with Ukraine. Because it's not always going to be rational. Obviously, everything rational has to be done in every strategy and every plan to protect and to negotiate and to sanction and to do whatever it takes. But sometimes you need something that you realize is beyond, beyond just a human intelligent plan that's something, some type of leap, leap of faith, some type of connection to something greater than we are. And that's the place we are in right now that we need to connect to. That this Purim, Tavshim Pei Beis, will be a Purim like no other. Peloyiz Ba, the Rebbe said, Tavshim Pei, Pei Aleph. So he said, Nifloyiz Ba, Tavshim Nun was, Tavshim Nisim, Tavshim Nifloyiz, then Tavshim Nifloyiz Arenu. So Peloyiz Arenu. A, a situation where Pella, a complete wonder, and we see it revealed with our eyes, that we'll see how these days will be transformed from to be Yehudim, as we say, and so 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 be for all the people in Ukraine, for especially the Jewish people, for Jews everywhere in the world, for all of Europe, and the Jews everywhere in America as well, including on an individual level, including myself, in my own personal. And transformation. And I want to conclude again on a personal note to thank you all for your prayers and good wishes and for being together and feeling, there's nothing like feeling when you're needed and feeling that you have a mission and purpose in life. And I definitely feel that my mission has been renewed, a new, a re, my contract has been renewed, and I will do whatever I can to live up to that mission of bringing Chsidis applied to everywhere that I can reach especially now in creating a spiritual revolution, a literally grassroots spiritual revolution that's more powerful than the war going on right now, raging in Ukraine 
a revolution of goodness and kindness, of Mola Aretz Deus Hashem, Kamayim Layam Echasim, filling the world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. This has been Simon Jacobson, My Life Citizen Applied. We're here every Sunday. Yes, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., stronger than ever. Everyone have a Freilich and Purim, a Freilich and Vernapachu, and we should see even before Purim, Tarim Yikrov Ani Ena, even before we say our prayers of Hadeni Makabu and Ach Tzadikim, see the total redemption of all the Jews in Ukraine, all the people there, and the redemption of the entire world. Thank you so much and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.